Dale's up first. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, yeah, I have been enjoy- I have been enjoying this weather. I cannot believe it's December. <laughs> Shorts and t-shirts yeah. in the middle of December. Nothing wrong with that picture. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Listen, I think I have a pretty. I know I have a pretty quick question. I have a um, Satsuma orange and a Myers lemon in uh, trees, although they really look like bushes. They've never grown tall. They're just kind of wide and uh, only about six feet tall. Okay. But um, they've got a lot of fruit this year. I cannot believe I've got. <laughs> I'm one of these. I used to be a CPA for forty years, so I count yeah. things. You know, I have a, like 105, <laughs> 105 oranges on one tree and 75 lemons on the other and i don't know when to pick them (laughs) well you can pick them at almost any time that you want to they're just going to get sweeter and better the longer you leave them on the tree it's frequently mid mid mid-january before things have really fully ripened your satsuma of course is cold hardy Oh, gosh, down close to 20 degrees, it can certainly stay out. Your Myers lemon wants to be protected below about 26. But just every day that you've got sunshine hitting the leaves, it's making more sugar and making the fruit sweeter. So the fruit is really not fully ripe until it just, you know, separates uh, easily from the limb or, for that matter, falls off the tree. The other way to tell is when the birds come in and start pecking at it, you know it's getting pretty close to perfect. But it's it's going to be, when you look at stuff in the grocery store and how green it's picked, uh, you know, if you pick that fruit today, it's probably going to be grocery store quality. But who wants grocery store quality when you can have, you know, Rio Grande Valley fresh pick quality? So um, it, it may be another month before it is fully ripened. Um, Okay, but okay. Uh, I, I certainly would put it off till Christmas at least to uh, have just the peak of flavor. Yeah, okay, that all that sounds right because I I I got another good year about two years ago, and I didn't think I did it until January, February, so yep. January, or February, somewhere in there. Okay. Well, you you remember correctly as CPAs <laughs> usually do. My parents were both CPAs. My it's my grandmother and grandfather I got my love of plants from, but I I. Uh, grew up in a in a household of cpa so yeah i i know exactly what you're talking about dale so get out and enjoy this weekend call me anytime i can help we'll do it and you have just a wonderful merry christmas you do the same sir thank you so much Uh bye all right next up is michael good morning michael hey bob how's Uh, your day oh getting better all the time (laughs) um got a question i i picked up something at a local tree and I, I don't know what i've been looking for it's a hanging plant called hearts and flowers okay i think yeah i know what you're talking about i think if you look up botanically be aptemia or something like that kind of succulent leaves and little lavender flowers no actually no it's it, it's succulent leaves like you're saying okay it's got red flowers that look like uh fireworks going off or, okay. or like a chrysanthemum yeah, they're, they're, that's one of the newer varieties the original one had sort of you know orchid purple flowers but uh you grow it like just about any succulent out there it just needs lots of sunlight uh wants to get moderately dry between waterings it doesn't want to stay dry it's uh going to be cold hardy a little below freezing but if you want to maintain it you know, it, it's really full beauty. Pull it inside anytime where we have frost threatening. But it's good hardy plant. Uh, and like I say, if you if you give it plenty of light, there's very little you can do wrong with it. Okay, so it's 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 essentially a cactus, then, right? It's a succulent. 
It is not a cactus. And, and even with cacti, you know, things, if you've ever spent any time in the desert, you know when it rains, it really rains. It may just be a while before it rains again. But succulents and cacti alike, they like to dry out between waterings, but they don't like to stay dry. Uh, nice thing about a hanging basket, you will learn very quickly how to judge from the weight of the basket. You can go out there and, you know, in a fraction of a second, you can lift it up and say, hey, it's fine, or hey, it needs to be watered today. And uh, just like I say, it's a, it's certainly more forgiving than, you know, a poinsettia or many other things as far as getting a little too dry. But if you want to maintain it, if you want it to really grow and continue to increase in beauty, try not to let it stay dry for too long between waterings. Right. I, I, I learned years ago with cactus, if you leave them alone, they'll grow. Yeah. <laughs> and then you just water them once a month and then get away with it. But, one thing I had to ask, though, I noticed yesterday the flowers were just perfect. They were all up. It was all, it was, you know, all, it was great. This morning I get up and I come out here and I thought, okay, let me make sure everything's good before I call in. And all the flowers are closed up, but, but not right now. Is this thing like a Venus flytrap? It's, well, I'd, I'd compare it more to Perslaner portulaca. The blooms will close at least partially at night and then reopen in the morning. Okay. Wow, it's wild. I, I mean, I bought the thing, and so, man, a bunch of ladies came up. Where'd you get that? I said, it was way in the back, and they were hidden. I don't know what the deal is. Well, I, think I think they were incorrect with their fee. So I, I said, well, let me just buy it and get it over and get out of here. Well, you'll find that uh, come springtime, summertime, you can uh, root little, uh, uh, they're not really branches, but you can root little pieces of it very easily and uh, share with all those jealous people around you. And uh, because it roots easily it grows quickly i would be feeding it with a little has to grow or medina's liquid fish or something like that you know maybe once a month or so and uh should be a beautiful plant for you for years to come okay yeah or super thriver do, do i miss it uh no reason to if you do that all you're going to do is get calcium on the leaves Excellent. Okay, I'll, I'll learn better. I'll just leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, leave it alone, but don't neglect it. Uh, don't right, right. don't overdo it, but neither do you want to totally ignore it. It's uh, um, you know, it's a lot of lot like a lot of people out there. They want to be noticed, but you just don't want to overdo it with them. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay, rather rather than be seen than dude. Okay, there okay, you go. Excellent. All right. Thank you, sir. You're welcome, Michael. Appreciate the call. Okay, let's just keep going here. Lisa is next. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Bob. How are you? It's just a beautiful morning out there. I've already dressed 25 or 30 poinsettias and done a few other related uh, things with plants, so I'm wide awake and just enjoying a beautiful morning. Well, you're, you've been more productive than I have been so far. <laughs> well, the difference is you have a choice and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm going to get busy here in a minute, which is why I'm calling you. I have, um, and I, every time I call you, I feel like I have the the dumbest questions of the day. No but it way. stop me from calling. Well, and from my old <laughs> days of teaching college freshman biology <laughs> students, uh, I can tell you the one that thinks they have a dumb question, at least 80% of the class wants an answer to it. So don't ever apologize and don't ever stop calling. What can I help you with today? Well, I've got um, some evergreen hedges in front of my house. I'm not sure what the variety is. They were there uh, when we got the house. Okay. And then on the side, I've got a, 
uh, more like a tree. It's got tiny little uh, red berries in it. Okay. And it's also an evergreen. It, does My it have thorns is, or thorns or no thorns? Yes. Has thorns. Yes. Okay, probably pyracantha. Okay. My question is. How how much can I cut those down, and when can I cut them down? Well, the best time to prune uh, most shrubs, uh, other than flowering shrubs, best time to prune is generally early spring, late February, early March. Now, things that flower, like Indian hawthorn, flowering quince, spirea, things that flower in the spring, we let them bloom first and then cut afterwards, because if we prune beforehand, we're obviously cutting off all the flower buds. Um, but typically on both of those, uh, I would look at uh, end of February, early March is the best time to prune. The question of how much you can prune is really based on leaves rather than size. You never want to prune it so much that you take off more than half the foliage at one time. Probably really better not to take off more than a third of the foliage at any one time because the leaves, of course, are what, you know, the, contain the chlorophyll and all that enables the plant to capture the sun's energy and continue to grow and thrive. It also is how the plant uses and gets rid of the water that it takes up through its roots. It's released through the leaves in the form of water vapor. And if you take away too many of the leaves, the plants tend to stay too wet and many times can die. So uh, I can't tell you, cut it back a third, cut it back a half, cut it back two thirds. I just say cut it back as much as you like, as long as you aren't removing more than, uh, you know, a third, uh, half of the leaves on the plant at one time. If it okay. needs to be cut back further than that and i had when i first moved into you know my the house on my ranch uh, outside of town i had japanese boxwood out front that were probably seven feet tall and i wanted them more like four feet but it was sort of a similar situation if i had cut them off that much i would have taken off virtually all the foliage so what i did is selectively went through plant by plant and I would cut back about a third of the tall branches. Then two, three months later, those branches that I had cut back had begun to put out more green foliage down low at the height I wanted. So I went through and cut back, you know, another third of the branches. And I, I did my cutting back in three steps. Uh, but in each time I would let the lower part of the branches start to leaf out again before I cut another group of branches back. And in that way, I didn't do it all at once, but I, I got rid of the top half of the plants without affecting their health. And they're, they're beautiful today as they've probably been for, you know, 80 or 90 years. I see. Okay. I, I, that's a, I hadn't thought about doing it that way. Okay. Now what about, uh, crepe myrtles? Are you supposed to trim those? Uh, it's totally up to you. You are not supposed okay. to top them like they do all over Houston. We call that crepe murder. And uh, you you trim crepe myrtles to shape them. You do it at the same time of year. Late February, early March is the best time because they bloom on new growth that comes out in the spring. It is totally your choice as to whether you prune them to be more shrub-like or more tree-like. doesn't make a lot of difference. And because they are deciduous plants, you can cut those things back just about as far as you want to. But I have to tell you, if you have, let's say, Basham's Party Pink, which grows 25 feet tall, and you want a crepe myrtle that's only 4 feet tall, uh, you better dig up the one you have and plant one that is smaller statured. So okay. don't overdo it, but uh, you can prune to shape. Uh, topping is a bad idea, though. Okay. Now, what do you mean by topping? Just whacking the limbs back at a random point. 
Um, if you oh. have one that's very tall and you want to reduce the size, you follow that principal trunk central leader, as they call it, down to a point that there is already a branch coming off at the height you want, pointing the direction you want, cut it back to that point. But don't ever cut it back just to a random point on the stem, or it'll make this little bird's nest of, bird's nest of weak, spindly growth. Um, I can tell you a lot of places around town, you can go to see how not to do it. I had lunch at Saluna the other day down the road from our nursery, and they just totally butchered their crepe myrtles out front. And horrible thing to do. You, you need to do it selectively. You need to you know, follow the limbs down to the point that they are already starting to branch and cut them back to that point. That way you won't get that little bird's nest of growth, and you'll maintain the shape while reducing the size of the crepe myrtle. Okay, I understand. And okay, I'm going to teach you, uh, I always teach a seminar on how to prune and show you how to do these things uh, sometime uh, mid to late February. So you might oh, might watch good. for that and come over and I'll actually show you how to do it. Oh, that would be wonderful. Okay, Bob, thank you so much. You're such an educator. I just <laughs> love your show. Thank well, you. I have a lot of fun. I get to talk to the nicest people out there. So, uh, Lisa, you have a good weekend and Merry Christmas. And I know we'll talk again. You as well, Bob. Thank you. Thank you so very much. All right. It's going to be Barbara and Betty Lou and Wayne and Jim. Ah, Good morning, Barbara. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning. I really am looking forward to your advice about something. Uh, Give me a try. Uh, Okay. This spring in mid-May, I had a 65-gallon, approximately 21-foot crepe myrtle planted. Okay. I watered it heavily all summer, and it did fine. It bloomed, really did fine. And I've cut back recently to just once a week for, uh, because it's cooler and we've had a little bit of rain. Mm-hmm. Should I stop watering it once the leaves drop off? Oh, no. No, do not, uh, because that root system, our plants don't really go fully dormant and the roots remain active. Uh, very likely many plants grow more roots during the winter months that they do than they do during the summer months. So if we don't get soaking rains, we haven't had a soaking rain in two months. If we don't get a soaking rain, um, I would continue to water it, um, oh, probably every three to four weeks, about once a month or so. Uh, remember that uh, that plant really is not real well established yet. It takes two to three years for those roots to really spread out, for that crepe myrtle to really become established. So wintertime watering at this point is critical. Even after the the plant is well established, I'd, I'd still be watering it every six to eight weeks through the winter if it uh, if we don't get good rains. But at this point, uh, that plant hasn't been, you know, away from home for, for very long, so to speak. It's uh, It has not gotten its roots real well established. So I'd say it's uh, very important to water it at least every three to four weeks. If we get a lot of wind and no rain at all, you may want to water it a little bit more than that. Yeah, okay. Well, I sure I sure appreciate that. And I'm wondering now, like, seeing it, it was so big when it was planted, mm-hmm. am I going to need to water it, like, maybe once a week next summer when... Hot weather gets here? Or? It will tell you. Um, and by the leaves, maybe. 
Yeah, and uh, but the answer is probably yes. Now, crepe myrtles, once established, are very drought tolerant. They still want some water, but again, it, it takes a year or two for a big plant like that to really become well-established. And at this point, you want the maximum number of flowers, so it's worth, uh, it's worth watering a little more often. Okay. Well, I sure appreciate that because I've been in a dither here as to what I should do. <laughs> well, what you should do is call me, and I'll give you the benefit of my uh, couple of years of experience on this matter, and I always look forward to hearing from you. Uh, thank you, Bob, and Merry Christmas to you. To you and your family as well, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Certainly. Goodbye. All right, uh, Betty Lou's turn. Good morning, Betty Lou. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Okay, I have three quick questions. Okay. Um, first, one of them has to do with lawn watering during the winter months. Mm-hmm. One has to do with properly caring for uh, poinsettias that are inside. Okay. Um, and the third one is going to have to do with, you know, what do I really need to cover if we're only going to get below freezing or at freezing for just a few hours, you know, according to the forecast. So, um, <laughs> Okay, uh, context, first of all. Well, wait, 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 let me tell you this. The context of my question is this. I've had major surgery, and I can't do a lot of physical stuff until mm-hmm. around June. Um, I've had to hire out someone to mow my grass up until recently, so I don't have to worry about that right now. But I can't ever move anything more than 15 to 20 pounds. Okay. So what that means is I can't move pots, mm-hmm. you know, potted plants inside, outside. I can't do that. Um, so I have to limit my physical activity. Um so within that context, okay. those questions. Okay. Um, what kind of grass do you have? Um, in the front, I have St. Augustine. Okay. And in the back, I have a mix. Um, I would say um, 50 to 60% is Bermuda, and then the rest is um, sporadic Augustine. <laughs> okay. And I live on a green belt, uh-huh. so I have some weeds back there. I did come out there and... And I love your fertilizer and your compost products. I did buy some fertilizer in October, and I dispersed it on the front and the back lawns, and I've done some watering since. Very um, good. And then we, we got a little rain, but anyway. Yeah, no, not enough to do any good. St. Augustine, you have to continue watering during the winter months. Bermuda grass, you could probably turn off the tap for a couple of months at a time. But your St. Augustine, you know, when we have – it was 82 degrees yesterday – uh, when we have mm-hmm. this kind of weather, your St. Augustine's going to need to be watered every week to 10 days in the winter months. When it is mm-hmm. colder, I would say you could go every maybe two weeks, to, uh, sometimes even three weeks. But you can't okay. stop watering your St. Augustine or you'll find that not as much of it is left alive next spring. And okay. I would hate to say it, but I'd probably do that both front and back if you like the St. Augustine. If you would rather have Bermuda, then you can stop watering and the St. Augustine will die and the Bermuda will take over. But in okay. many respects, St. Augustine is a more pleasing grass because it'll never have chiggers. It has the longest uh, green season of any of the grasses. Uh, I just think many people mm-hmm. have too much of it, but I still think it's one of the best grasses you can have. So uh, that yeah. would be the answer on watering on the grass. As far as poinsettias, okay. poinsettias need uh, two or three different things. They need to have bright light. So 
Um, I would leave them sitting in front of a sunny window as much as possible. Now, I don't think they're going to be beyond your weight limit. So um, if you need to put them other places for decorating purposes, you know, move them to the table, move them to the credenza, move them wherever you need to move them for the party. These are... these are large poinsettias that I've had for several years. They're almost okay. like bushes. <laughs> okay. And they're not even red anymore. They're some okay. uh, well, pots. Yeah, you'll need to keep them where they get plenty of light, um, and okay. they do need to be protected from freezing. The way that you get them to turn red, poinsettia is very sensitive to day length. And the thing that makes them turn red around Christmas time is when the nights start getting shorter in the fall, this triggers um, the the flowering. What you're seeing in the red is not actually the blooms. Those are the call they're called racks. They color up and the little blooms are actually in the center. But as long as your plants receive natural day length changes, they'll they'll color up for you around Christmas time every year. But if they're in a room where you leave the lights on in the evening, in their perception it's still July and no reason to turn color. So that's what you have to do. Uh uh either put them in a room or put them in a place where they don't get light during the normal long night but do get light during the day some people get half the story right somebody tells them they have to put them in the closet if they want them to bloom and then i get a call and somebody says well my plant's been in the closet six weeks and it looks terrible yeah you have to put it in the closet at four o'clock every day but bring it back out at eight o'clock the next morning the best thing of course is just have them in a place where you get natural day length and then they will color up for you so with those poinsettias uh have someone help you get them in front of the windows and just leave them there. They need as much light as you can give them, and they don't want a hot okay. draft blowing on them. They don't really like drafts, hot or cold. But beyond that, uh, they're okay. very, very tough and durable plants. Now, as far as covering, that all depends on what kind of plants you have. If you have tropical okay. plants like hibiscus or bougainvilleas, if you have warm well, seeds. i tell you what I have. Okay, run through that. Let's see. Okay, so primarily um, I planted uh, in the last summer, and they're doing really well. I planted a whole bunch of purple lantana okay. in a uh, flower box off my porch, and it's like eight feet long by about three feet plus wide, okay. maybe four foot wide, and they're thriving. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the back porch facing east and southeast, um, the front porch faces northwest and the okay. back southeast. I have um, two very, very large and again, these are all in pots, and I can't move them, so they have to be covered. I have two very large um, aloe vera, okay. and I have a cat's claw in a pot, and I have uh, in the yard, I have two fledgling lemon trees that I planted last summer, and then I have a uh, peach tree that I had grown in a pot for almost 10 years, and it's like almost six foot tall. It's doing incredible, okay. and it, those have been in the ground since last summer. Okay. So what about that? Okay, your aloe has to be covered if it's going to even get to freezing. Uh, aloe will turn okay. to mush if it goes much below freezing. Your purple lantana, okay. trailing lantana, um, it will continue to remain green and flower if you uh, down to maybe 26 degrees. Below that point, oh. it's not going to die, but it's going to freeze back if it gets much okay. colder. Uh, in a pot, I'd be concerned yeah. if we're going to get down in the teens, and I probably would want to protect it yeah. then. But purple lantana is just a champion bloomer this time of year and has the potential oh, to bloom beautiful. all winter long. 
Um, your lemon yeah. tree, if it's Myers lemon, which is probably what it is, uh, good down to about 26. Only going to have to protect it if it's a uh, really cold spell. And um, okay. keep an eye on next Wednesday morning. Uh, we're probably going to be down in the mid-20s in the hill country. Hopefully San Antonio won't approach that. But uh, We're looking at 31, yeah. 32. Uh, you Only can, for a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah. You, you can okay. uh, not worry about your lemon. Your peach tree, don't okay. ever protect it because the only way it's going to okay. flower and bloom is if it gets the appropriate amount of uh, cold weather during the winter months, and it's it's cold hardy to zero. So sounds to me oh, like you're going to have to you're going to have to protect your aloe frequently. Now, cat's claw, okay. if uh, what you're calling cat's claw is the native acacia gregii, which is um, it's a native shrub, and it's cold hardy, gosh, even in a container, probably down to 10 degrees, so I wouldn't worry about it. Problem with uh, common names, but if uh, um, if it is indeed uh, one of the acacias, you certainly don't need to worry about it. So you're going to cover the aloe a lot. You're going to cover the lemon occasionally. And you're not going to worry about the other things. All right. Awesome. Well, you recovered, you, so you recovered quickly so you can get back to all the things you love to do. Thank you. Oh, I know. And I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. And, and thank you so much for your wisdom. It's always a pleasure, Reggie Lou. You do the same. And uh, look forward okay. to our next visit. Thank you. All right. Looks like it's going to be Jim and Wayne and June. That's the order the phone calls came in. So that's the way we take them. Good morning, Jim. Morning. How are you doing? I'm great, sir. How about you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Excellent. The reason I'm calling because, like, uh, two, three weeks ago, you had a caller asking about his chili patines. Yes, sir. Oh, he's going to, you know, he had a bunch of them, and he didn't know what to do with them. Right. There were too many. I had the same problem a couple of years ago. So what I did, I picked a whole bunch of them, and I put them in uh, uh, a pickle jar with a pickle juice. Uh-huh. And they lasted for a good while. And, uh, and it made some very flavorful pickle juice, too, for salad dressings and things. Yes, sir. It worked out great. Yeah. yeah. What you're doing is putting them basically in an acidic medium. Uh, a lot of people do the same thing with vinegars to make flavored vinegars. But uh, I appreciate you sharing your information. And, uh, you you know, there's just nothing like a jelly piquin. It's just one of the hottest, tastiest <laughs> little peppers. And if you can't handle the heat, you can roast them, which reduces the heat. So a uh, uh, great thing to suggest. And I sure appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. Yeah, Merry Christmas. You do the same, Jim. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. That's another great idea for all those because chili piquins do tend to, <laughs> they become very profuse in their production, shall we say. Uh, Wayne's next. Good morning, Wayne. Morning, Bob. I got a question. I got two questions. One of them's for me. One of them's for a friend. Okay. He really is for a friend. Uh, <laughs> if you I'm say fine. so. <laughs> I'll start with the one for the friend. Uh, buddy's up in uh, up in uh, Ingram, and he's in the in the uh, hill country. Uh-huh. We were talking this last week, and he's he's got a pretty sparse amount of soil up there. And he was uh, we were talking about how to build the soil up, and I can't remember everything you've you've taught me over the years. But uh, I told him I'd call, and so I'm uh, curious about what the best way to go about that is. Well, you know there 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 are really two ways that uh, um, that people have problems in the hill country with lack of soil. A lot of us have 
uh, a rocky soil but with good soil in between the rocks. And with those, you simply get enough of the rocks out that you can do the planting you want to. You build your soil with things like molasses and compost and all of those other things, and your soil just gets better and better and better. Uh, the second problem is a lot more complex because you got just a shelf of rock with relatively thin soil on top of it, and where that's the case, you really have very little choice other than build up. Now, I'm not a big fan of cinder blocks, although a lot of people use them to create raised beds. I like using the natural limestone. Um, if you want to make it look a little more formal, you can go somewhere like Stone and Soil Depot and buy it cut into links. I bought a whole pallet of it recently from them and use it to build some new beds. But uh, where you have existing soil, you build it with organic material, you build it with sugars like molasses, and um, over time your soil just gets better and better and better. But if you're just sitting on a slab of rock, and i tell you the way you can tell, you look around your property, and if you've got a bunch of uh, oak trees, lots and lots of oak trees, and none of them are more than about four or five inches in diameter, you're sitting on a slab of rock, and you're going to have to build up. If you look out there and you have some really huge, majestic trees, but maybe not so many of them, then you're dealing with a rocky soil that has plenty of gaps through it and plenty of soil there to work with. And uh, depending on where you are in the hill country, you know, you will have one or the other. Unless you're right along a creek bed, you're not going to have good, deep, uh, reasonable soil. But if you're fortunate enough to have that, I have a, you know, big field adjacent to a creek with good, deep soil. And I always attempt to build that soil by using only organic fertilizers, never any synthetic stuff, and then supplementing it with uh, molasses, supplementing it with uh, some of the rock powders, and certainly with plenty of cow manure out on it naturally. And the molasses just, just as you, I think you told me in the past, it, it basically just create, it gives the microbial uh community some something to work with right you remember exactly right and technically if you looked at pounds of organic material created in the soil uh, those microbes especially the bacteria create more organic material than any other source i mean people always think of tree roots and plant roots and other things contributing organic material but bacteria because you have literally billions of them and every small oh gosh i'll have to get the numbers from david vaughn uh how many how many million billion bacteria are in a cup of soil is just incredible the molasses gives those creatures the energy to grow and reproduce and over time they are our biggest builders of organic material which have been builds of course our nice friable rich soil that we all wish we had 10 times as much of right and it doesn't have to be any fancy molasses Uh, i use the molasses that goes in the lick feeders for macaws Okay, well, I got access to that, and I'm going to be putting a bunch of that on my fields out here in South Texas. Well, it will certainly help. The maximum rate, you're never going to hurt anything except your bank account with molasses, but uh, sort of the optimum amount to put out is about five gallons per acre. If you go any more than that, you're just, you know, kind of doing a lot more than you need. So a little bit of molasses goes a long way. Anything will help, but uh, no more than five gallons per acre to get the maximum benefit. Sure, that's perfect. Thanks, Bob. The other thing I was going to ask you about real quick was uh, Mount Laurels. I came across, uh, I was walking around a cemetery earlier in the, or late last week, 
and I came across one really prolific mountain laurel tree that's planted out mm-hmm. there. It had tons of pods, and so I, I grabbed a whole bunch of them off of that thing, and uh, and I was wanting to go ahead and start start several of them out of my place here. I was wondering, is it best to plant those in the ground? Is it best to plant those in pots? It depends on what kind of guaranteed results you want and uh, how much of a hurry you're in and how much you're willing to do. Mother Nature makes those seeds very hard with a waxy coating. Uh, So if you just plant the seeds, they may sit there for five years or 10 years or 20 years before they sprout and grow. And we can speed the germination and the growth process up by simply scratching the seed. It's called scarifying, and you're not trying to saw a hole in it. You're just sitting there with a little triangular file, or if you've got huge numbers and nobody has a gem tumbler, put a little carborundum in there, put your seed in there, and just tumble it for an hour. But what you're doing is just trying to get that waxy waterproof coating you just want to get some little nicks through that and and like i say it didn't even have to make a visible mark you just slide that triangular file across it fairly hard uh and then soak them in something like garret juice you can use water but i always put just a little garret juice in because i think it speeds it up and you can either then plant them directly in the ground or you can plant them in pots grow them up to whatever size you like, and then plant them out. The thing to remember is that once they sprout and begin to grow, they're going to need to be watered for a while until they really get up to be good-sized plants with big root systems. So you can't just plant them and forget about them. That's what Mother Nature does, but probably only one out of a 100 or maybe one out of a 1,000 seeds that uh, she produces ever actually grow up to a mountain laurel, and uh, Wayne wants a little bit higher odds than that. So... um uh, the scarifying is important to get them growing within a reasonable period of time. Beyond that, it's up to you whether you want to put them in pots and then transfer them to the ground once they're up and growing. But uh, just remember that once you get them started, you've got to continue to care for them before until they get really, really well established. Now, my ranch is covered with Mount Laurels, and I don't do a thing for them except try to cut the cedars away from them periodically. Uh, but those trees have had years to become established, and their roots probably go all the way to Bandera County. So uh, that's sort of what's Mount Laurel 101. Sure. What's the spacing that I want to do if I want to put them in a row or something like that? But how far apart should they be spaced? Well, if you want a dense growth of them, you probably want to put them about four feet apart. But you can spread them as far as you want to. You can plant them as close as you want to. Being crowded will not hurt the trees in any way. It won't allow them to, you know, achieve a real individual pretty shape. It's kind of like a Christmas tree. If you had it out in the middle of a field, you could trim it to be perfectly Christmas tree shaped. But if it's crowded in with uh, 10 or 15 other trees, it's going to be bending this way and that way looking for the light. So it's totally up to you. If you want to see individual trees, plant them, oh gosh, you know, five to ten feet apart. If you just want a nice evergreen screen, you can put them as close together as you like, and I would put them no further apart than maybe four feet. Great. Bob, I sure appreciate you all the time. You have a Merry Christmas. You do the same, right? I appreciate it. I appreciate the call, sir. Thank you. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be June and Frank and Tony and Maggie in that order. So uh, good morning, June. Hi, June. Good morning. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hello. 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 This is June. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Bob, good morning. I have 
uh, Narcissus paper whites, and I put them in water in a gl- tall glass vase. Okay. They have they have grown above the vase, and I can see the buds coming out. My question is, I have them only in tap water. Could I use some has to grow in that water? Would that help them? Oh, it certainly would help them, but I would just use a little bit. And um, it would be long term, it would be good to not just leave them standing in that, but add a little bit of has to grow. And then, uh, if possible, you would just pour that off and put clear water back in the next day or something. But I have to tell you, it's not going to improve them all that much. Uh, They would like it. And if you're thinking of planting the bulbs outside after they have finished their flowering, then it has to grow would be a good idea. But otherwise, I wouldn't worry about it. Oh, all right. Well, then for no more uh, advantage than that, I probably wouldn't even do it. Probably not. Now, here's something that sounds crazy, but this is research out of Cornell University. If you want your paper whites to be more upright, perhaps be a little bit more compact, what you put in the water with them is either gin or vodka. Uh, you know, as much as probably a jigger full in there. And the article is something like why tipsy flowers don't tip over or something like that. But this is very good research out there that shows that paper whites make stronger, more upright, uh, more beautiful flowers if they are given a little drink of uh, some clear uh, liquor like gin or vodka. So if if you have any of that to spare, um, put it in the water for your paper whites, and the bulbs and the plants will be stronger stemmed, and you'll probably have better flowers. Oh, my goodness, what an easy way. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I want to give up the good gin. I sure wouldn't. i go buy some cheap <laughs> stuff if I was going to put that in my paper whites. But that that is scientifically shown now to be true. Well, uh, thank you so much for that answer. It'll make a good conversation piece, that's for sure. <laughs> that, that it will do, June. You have a very Merry Christmas, and thank you for and, calling. And you do the same, Bob. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Certainly. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's try to get Frank in here before the break. Good morning, Frank. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning. Um, I just got a quick question. I've been trying to make some compost. I got some leaves. I got every kind of old vegetable in the world in there, uh, and uh, coffee grounds, uh, everything you can think of off the table that, you know, old out of the refrigerator and that. Great idea. It looks, it looks real good. Um but the leaves still haven't turned into anything but old brown, black-looking leaves. It takes, yeah, it takes leaves longer to break down. Um, uh, one thing that you can do in your existing compost pile, of course, keep it moist. As dry as it's been, uh, you probably need to add some water to that compost pile at least once a week. If you will add some molasses, take uh, mix two or three tablespoons in a gallon of water and use that to wet down your compost pile. That will help break your leaves down more quickly. And next time you do this, before you put the leaves in your compost pile, run your lawnmower through them two or three times. Chop them up in smaller pieces. That gives you more surface area for the microbes to work on breaking them down. And chopped up leaves rot, you know, about four times as fast as just big old intact leaves do. Okay. All right. What I was thinking of doing, I, believe it or not, I got some of your... Um, 
little um, golden tomatoes, cherry-looking tomatoes out there, you know, at, at uh, the garden shop. Right. And those those suckers are still putting out tomatoes. Absolutely. And, and uh, I'm just... I was, I put them in, I think, is the first week of August, mm-hmm. and I didn't. I didn't get anything all of September, and all of a sudden, man, they come on like crazy. And so, uh, when they're done, I'm thinking of okay. Then what I'll do is put that compost in the ground there and stir it up with some dirt. Oh, that'll work. For, yeah, that'll work spring. just fine. But if you can cover, I suspect that your tomatoes variety called Sun Gold. If you can put a little row cover over it, give it some protection. Those things can produce all winter for you. So don't just give up and let them freeze. If you can cover them, uh, Sun Gold will just keep on keeping on, and you'll have you'll have fresh tomatoes when everybody else is buying that crub from the store but uh you will yeah you will improve the soil for your tomatoes and everything else once that compost gets uh, fully broken down which should happen yeah. by spring yeah i was out there picking them yesterday and, and believe it or not now it's the middle of december and i still got the little yellow uh little uh uh, flowers on the darn train. Well, oh my God, I'm going to get more. Trains. You're you're doing it right. You're doing it right, Frank. Listen, I've got to go to news. You have a happy Christmas season. We'll talk again. This is KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. Good morning, Tony. Bob, good morning. Good and, morning, uh, sir. Merry Merry Christmas to you and to you as well, sir. I've so enjoyed your show over the years. The advice that you give personally over the phone and over the radio you're such an inspiration thank you well i appreciate that i as you can probably tell i enjoy what i do and uh you know gardening's just a good pastime and what is it they say gardening is cheaper than therapy and you get tomatoes <laughs> so there are a lot of a lot of reasons and i appreciate you listening and calling what, what can i help you with today well and one other thing i enjoy shopping at uh, shades of green you have a, a great variety in, in the paths and the 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 way you designed it is really cool. Well, I wish I could take all the credit, but I have a very talented business partner, and she gets more of the credit than me, and we have some uh, very talented people that um, I'll take credit for a lot of the ideas and for a lot of the plant knowledge that I get to share with them, but I'm not about to take full credit for what a beautiful place Shades of Green is because I, I'm actually the low man on the totem pole when it comes to making it beautiful. <laughs> I want to talk air spade or air knife. Uh-huh. And can I make one? Um, I've got 75 or so fruit trees, and I was going to be real smart when I planted them, so I dug the dirt soft underneath. Mm-hmm. And so they say I planted them properly. Yep. But then, as the soil settled, so did the uh, tree. Yep. That's a very, very common problem, Tony. And uh, here's the thing about air spades. The the air spade machine, as you call it, you know, is I understand it was actually invented by the Army to uh, uncover landmines without exploding them. And the air spade itself is a very simple machine, and you could probably build one yourself. But because of the volume of air you need, you need one of those uh, one of those compressors, like you'd run a jackhammer off of, or something like that. So um, that's not really a do-it-yourself project where you've got a lot of work to do. What I would do is think about either making your own air spade or buying one, and then going out and renting the compressor because, like all. You know, all gasoline equipment, if you're not using it regularly, 
uh, especially with this blasted gas with the ethanol in it, you're going to gum up the carburetor and everything else. And uh, a <laughs> if you can find a diesel one, of course, there are a lot less maintenance. But I, my advice would be go out and rent a compressor for a day or a week or whatever you need it for. But if you want to, if you want to make your own air spade, it's just basically something that will give you a strong powerful direct blast of air and that's not real complicated you probably you know take a look at one somewhere because they do rent the air spade itself but uh you know clever capable metal worker like yourself i'm sure you can create your air spade but uh i think you're probably going to want to run the want to rent a compressor because even a good shop compressor is not going to produce enough air to do the job reliably yeah that's what i was worried about because i have a pretty good shop compressor and yeah and uh, I just didn't think the volume was there. Well, you're exactly right about that. And, uh, you know, you, you can burn up uh, even even the best shop compressor out there trying to run that thing continuously for hours at a time. Be a bad idea. And, uh, you know, even these things I see at the, uh, at the equipment stores that are one of those tall tanks, uh, still not going to produce the volume very you need. You need, but... You know, having said that, I've rented and used jackhammers before. It's not something I would really choose to do, but the compressor's not that expensive to uh, rent for a day, and especially this time of year when you feel like, you know, using it for a good part of the day. I'll bet you could uncover 100 trees in a day's time. Sure. Okay, that, that's a great idea about the compressor. And the uh, you mentioned uh, renting an airspace. Uh-huh. Do you know of a place? At least I could check the prices. You know, the rental companies, we used to have a bunch of good little independent rental companies, and uh, now they've pretty much all been gobbled up by the big guys. I call Sunbelt. Uh, if you want to talk to, uh, you know, one of the old-fashioned ones still owned by a nice guy, uh, there's a fellow up in Bernie's called Thomas Rentals. He's right at the corner of I-10 and John's Road up there. And uh, you can call Thomas and ask ask them if they have one to rent. Otherwise, I'd just be calling around, uh, oh, Sunbelt, and gosh, I can't even keep up with them, uh, uh, and, and just find out who has them and check the price on them. Sounds good. Bob, thanks so much. Have a great day. You do the same, Tony. I sure appreciate the call. All right, uh, that makes Maggie next up. Good morning, Maggie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have a succulent problem. Uh, well, pr- I have a question about succulents. <laughs> I'm babysitting three little su- succulents for my granddaughter. Okay. They are in tiny little bowls, like I bet not more than a cup size. Mm-hmm. And they're tiny little succulents. And they're in very loose uh, mixture of some sort of soil with some perlite in it. Okay. She told me she was she was told to spritz them every few days. But the soil is very, very dry. Yeah, no, somebody doesn't really know what they're talking about. The problem with, you know, growing plants like that in a very loose soil is it's hard to water them without soil going everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so what I would suggest to a babysitter <laughs> to yeah. do is uh, take a plant saucer or something like that, Put a half an inch of water in the bottom of it and just sit those pots down in there. 
Uh, you probably have to leave them for an hour or two, but the plants will soak up. That soil will soak up all the water it needs. They don't have to be watered from the top. They can be watered. You, of course, don't want to leave them standing in water, but you can just set them down in the water for an hour or two, however long it takes for that soil to saturate properly. And that way you're giving them the water they need. You're not, all you're doing by spritzing is getting calcium all over the leaves, which is the not, problem with these, Bob, is they are not in pots that drain. Mm. In three little clear glass, what I would call pudding cups, they okay. look like. And that's what they sold them when they got the, when they got the succulents. Oh. So you have to be careful that sure. the, you don't, they don't sit in water. Well, here's, here's a solution. Number one, tell her to buy them from a better company next time. <laughs> but for those, uh, Maggie, just uh, take an ice cube or two. Put on oh. top of the soil, that's going to, and they're not going to mind the cold at all, but oh, that not. ice is going to melt so slowly that it's all going to be absorbed. And oh. if it's the size of a pudding cup, I'd probably put two ice cubes, uh, just average size ice cubes. I put two of them on each plant, and okay. uh, then, you know, when it dries out, do it all over again. And that's a great way to water where, you know, you don't want to wash soil out of the pot. Years ago, before we opened Shades of Green, we, we did a, had a plant maintenance service, and we took care of plants in restaurants and places like that. And I always think back to the old days of Crystal Baking Company, where Joe had about 40 hanging baskets in the windows, and he didn't want his customers getting dripped on. And, man, we emptied half his ice machine three times a week, and that's all we ever put on those plants, and they absolutely thrived. So I think now at some point it's going to be good to get a little fertilizer in the soil and things like that but uh okay, i was going to ask you that i yeah. heard the gentleman that had a different type of succulent earlier and you mentioned fertilizer but would it have to be very very weak it would have to be pretty weak and here's what you could do and uh when you're making it pretty weak uh, this may sound crazy but just uh you know go go to the you know dollar store or whatever and buy yourself a 50 cent ice cube tray one of those plastic ones you oh. just pop the ice out of i have uh, one of those uh-huh. okay well make up your solution with whatever liquid kind of fertilizer oh. you want Put it in the ice tray and just make uh, fertilizer cubes instead of ice cubes, and That's just put so that. Straight. Would you say a drop in each cube? Um, maybe uh, two or three drops in each cube. Okay, okay. I have another question. First of all, if they die before she comes back, <laughs> it'll be Merry Christmas and we'll go buy some new ones because I don't deal good with stuff that don't drain. But I want to ask you: some of the leaves have fallen off. Mm-hmm. One of them, and I don't know if it was accidental in transit or if the plant is shedding them. But if I stick those down in the dirt, would they make new little plants or not? If they haven't shriveled, they very likely they they very likely would. In fact, this is one of the ways the plant propagates itself. You probably don't need to stick them down in. You can just leave them lying there, and that's one place that you might want to mist them if they're in the genus of plants we call sedum. And they're probably, you know, 50 different species of sedum. That's the main way that plant propagates itself is every time you bump it, three or four leaves fall off and every one of them makes a new plant. This one, well, this one particular one, uh, I, don't, I think I've just kind of dug in the soil very lightly. Mm-hmm. Very, very uh, fibrous. I don't know what the word would be, but it's very, very fibrous soil, almost uh-huh. like ground up 
peat moss or and something. That's probably exactly what it is, and that's kind of a crappy potting soil. But that's yeah. what they're growing in, so leave them there. And when they outgrow those little pudding cups, have her get just a better quality potting soil. Plant yeah. them in pots that drain, and then they're going to really take off and grow. Welcome back to the next semester with these things in different pots, and maybe she'll have a better chance of, of having some success. My other question is, I know they have to be put, they, I heard you say earlier, they, they want to be in, in the sun. We, we have them in the house. Mm-hmm. Does they have to be right where the sun shines on them, or That's, do I have to put them outside a no, little every they, day? They'll be fine uh, in the home, especially if you have a south or a west window that gets some south. direct sunlight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We'll see what we can do with those. I will make some ice cubes with a little fertilizer in it, and um, if they die, we'll buy a new <laughs> just, one. <laughs> uh, just, just don't mix up those ice cubes. I don't think they'd be very good in your drink, but uh, the plants will think it's wonderful, Maggie. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. You're sure welcome. Enjoy your show. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Bye. All right, let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Mike and Christy and Reese and Andy. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Got a few questions. Um, purchased a crepe myrtle the other day, about three feet high, uh, pencil thin uh, uh, trunks. Okay. Uh, and I was listening to you earlier about watering them specifically. Uh, mm-hmm. So since this thing is, you know, still relatively new and maybe a week in the in the ground, uh-huh. uh, and it's winter, you know, uh, it's like once a week, uh, good thorough watering enough, or well, you're you're down in a fairly arid area, so to speak, and just remember that plant is losing moisture constantly through that, you know, that smooth bark. If you want to help that plant, uh, well, as far as watering, soak it really thoroughly. When soil's dry and knuckle deep, it's time to water again. But at this okay. point, if you were able to pick up that hose every day and just spray over the limbs, it's going to absorb a great deal of moisture that way. And I know of no better way to get any deciduous tree, whether it's scrape myrtle or a fruit tree. Um, if you go out and, you know, just spray down the trunk of it, if you do it three or four times a day, uh, that would be what it would be getting if it were in a quality nursery. So, um, the better the care you give it, the you know the faster it's going to grow, the more flowers it's going to give you. So, at a minimum, I would water it thoroughly whenever the soil's dry, you know, like a knuckle deep or so. But uh, uh, just whenever you think about it, spray it down, let it absorb some moisture uh-huh. through that bark while it's getting its roots okay. established, and uh, it'll it'll outgrow your expectations. Wow, fantastic. Uh- and uh, my Mexican key lime tree, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seems like it, the leaves curl year-round. I mean, it's still producing very well. <laughs> Welcome to I Citrus. Under- I just don't understand this leaf curling. Well, if you were to go down on the Rio Grande Valley, go down to Harlingen and places, there are not nearly as many citrus groves as there used to be because that land seems to be turned into subdivisions the same way it is a lot of other places. Yes. But that's yes. just the way citrus grows. Um, uh-huh. you know, if, if you're losing lower leaves yellowing it, they're probably getting a little too dry. Um, if you get sort of an overall yellowing to it, it probably means it's winter. You could just about judge the season of the year by looking at the, at the leaves on your key lime tree. But now if they're twisted and distorted, 
then you may have a little mite in there and something like your uh, um, insecticidal soap or uh, your spinosad soap, better still, would certainly take care okay. of that. But a mere curling or rolling of the leaves, uh, welcome uh-huh. to growing citrus. <laughs> also, um, I was out just a little while ago, um, kind of like pruning in between, you know, so the light will get to the ones in, in the middle also. The, mm-hmm. to the, uh, is that okay? Nothing wrong with it. I'll tell you on citrus, it's not as important as it is on peaches and plums and things like that. Citrus tend to, I guess you'd say they tend to share the nutrients more evenly through the tree. And uh, again, having known some very good citrus growers down in the valley, uh, I've never known any of them to go through and in effect thin the tree out. But um, certainly wouldn't hurt anything. Will it produce more fruit or better fruit? I'm not sure it will. Okay, and uh, last but not least, uh, we got a little present here of an orchid, and I hear you're an expert on orchids. Um, it's, uh, I think we've had it like for two weeks now, and I don't even see one. The bottom leaves, uh, one already, you know, turned brown and, and mm-hmm. dropped off. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know it said something about putting a couple ice cubes as far as watering and well, your light, but not direct sunlight. And it indoors, but, uh, indoors, it really wants direct sunlight. Um, it's probably, is it the one, my business partner, cause we used to grow 30,000 of those things a year and she used to call them cow tongues. Is that what the leaves look like? Big flat leaves and the spike yes. of flowers. Okay. It is in, uh, it's what they call commonly a moth orchid botanically. It's either a phalaenopsis or a dridenopsis and they come potted in that sphagnum moss. And I tell you, the roots may do fine in Taiwan where they started out in that stuff, but long term, it's just not a good growing medium. I would tell you, as soon as that plant is through flowering, get it out of that, pot it into a fir bark mix or an orchid bark. You know, I'm sure you can find somebody around that has just a bag of what they call orchid potting mix or orchid box, uh, bark mix. I've gotten to where, because I, you know, I'm tempted by some of the really unusual, beautiful ones in the grocery store myself, but I've gotten to the point that I repot them almost immediately. Sometimes the blooms don't last as long, but on the other hand, when I've let them go for, because they'll stay in bloom for two or three or four months, uh, I find that, you know, by the time I get, the by the time the flowering is finished, those roots are in really bad shape, and I've gotten to where I, you know, pretty much repot them as soon as I get them home, and they start putting out new roots. And long term, it will make a better plant. They would okay. like you to grow that plant while it's in bloom, and then throw it away, and then come buy another one. Sure, uh, sure. <laughs> but you and I are plant growers, and we hate to we hate to do that with anything save annual plants that we know we're gonna, you know, only have a season of growth, but. Uh, Keep that plant in the brightest window you can in your home, not touching the glass, but in a bright window. When it's um, when you pick it up and it starts to feel a little lightweight or when you can put your finger on top of the medium that it's in and it starts feeling a little dry, stick it in uh-huh. the sink, water it very, very thoroughly, and then put it back in its decorative pot and uh, keep it out of any hot drafts. Don't keep it where the air conditioner vent's going to blow on it. But okay. it's going to stay beautiful for you for a long time. The only real problem I can tell you with orchids is that they are highly addictive. I started with three plants as a science fair project in the eighth grade. By the time I got out of high school, I had 300. By the time I got out of college, I had 3,000. And they are, it's a huge and fascinating family of plants. I've got uh, something called a dendrobium 
uh, cream cascade it's called. It's in bloom right now. It's bright yellow, and it must have 150 flowers on it. And uh, orchids wow. will get into your blood. I'm just warning you. Um, well, expect the only a, addiction, yeah. <laughs> the only addiction I seem to have is to food. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you haven't tried uh, orchids yet. So, uh, but anyway, uh, they are a wonderful plant. They are actually once you get them in the right potting medium, if you have ad- adequate light, that kind of orchid is uh, is just an excellent plant and will be in bloom far longer than chrysanthemums or calanchos or lots of other things that people buy. Unfortunately, Uh many kinds of orchids take brighter light than you will ever be able to maintain in your home, so you'll end up building a greenhouse. Um, Uh One of the guys that got me into orchids uh, on a bigger scale, first time I ever saw him, he was a surgeon that lived around the corner from my grandparents. He had built his wife a nice greenhouse for her African violets. Uh, and he had, uh, you know, there were probably 300 African violets, and he had half a dozen orchids in the corner. Went to see him the next Christmas, and he probably had 300 orchids, and her African violets were on a little shelf in the corner. Next time I went to see him, he built a second greenhouse, and then it was a third greenhouse. And then he moved out in the country where he could build a huge greenhouse. So I'm just warning you, that's what happens when you're successful with orchids. But in the meantime, just enjoy them. And uh, a little has right. to grow any good liquid plant food. Use okay. that on about every three or four weeks. And uh, uh, the Phalaenopsis do not like cold temperatures. They don't like it below 60, so try to keep them at about sure. room temperature. And it uh, should do very well for you, Mike. All right. Thank you, and uh, Merry Christmas, Bob. And to you and your family as well. Thank you, sir. All right. <laughs> Bye. Right, bye-bye. All right. Christy's next. Good morning, Christy. Hey, good morning, Bob. How good. are you? I'm good. How are you today? Just peachy. Good. So, we, I'm turning to you. We bought this um, late summer 10 acres of beautiful, gorgeous land in Mason. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm looking forward to playing in the garden full time. Good. That being said, um, I kind of know I'd like to grow peaches, apples, <laughs> possibly pears. I was going to make some bad pun about your feeling peachy, but I see you're already yeah. headed that direction. You betcha. So um, spring is obviously, you know, 10 years earlier would have been the best time, but right. we just bought it. So what is the best way to prepare the land itself um, to have these plants? Okay. Where would be my best resources to do more research? Okay. On how to grow them properly. Um, as far as preparing your land, I'll tell you how. When I was expanding, where I had more peaches and plums and things in my garden, and you're actually going to find January is probably the month you will find the widest availability of uh, fruit trees of all sorts so uh, uh, what I would do is every place that I was going to plant a tree I'd put about half a wheelbarrow full of compost down put like a little crater in the top of it and every time I thought about it I'd go fill it with water and okay. and given a couple of months for all those microbes for all those chemic acids to start getting down into the soil you'll find it will improve your soil a great deal now uh, research is tough. Um, there is a reasonably good book, although the guy's not organic in any way. He's a, a professor or was a professor at Texas A&M named George Ray McEachern, M-C-E-A-C-H-E-R-N. And he has a, a little paperback book. It's called Growing Fruits, Nuts, and Berries in the South. 
and ignore his fertilizing suggestions, but uh, great diagrams on pruning, great diagrams on getting started. Uh, you will find uh, some information. Uh, Malcolm Beck and Howard Garrett did an organic book uh, on vegetable gardening that has a section on fruit trees in the back. And I don't know of a really good big book because growing fruits is very, very regional. Because what you're going to have to do, especially in choosing your peach varieties, you're going to have to grow peaches that are in the proper chill zone. Peaches have to have a certain number of hours of weather below 45 degrees in order to bloom and set fruit. If you get a peach that is a higher chilling peach, it'll never get enough cold and it won't ever bloom or produce. If you get a low chilling peach, it'll bloom too early and freeze back every year. Where you are in Mason, you're probably looking at about a 900-hour peach to about a 1,000-hour peach. And so you're going to be choosing many of the same varieties that you would uh, grow in Fredericksburg or Stonewall or up in that area. You would not be growing the same thing I'm growing in my orchard in Bernie. So um, as far as sources, check around uh, with people in your area. See if anybody carries fruit trees and if they carry the that's sort of a mid chilling range i mean up in fredericksburg we go up to 1200 hour peaches but uh here in san antonio fanix is going to be probably the best source on peaches and plums and i would ask first but call her and, and talk to either mark or mike fanick and ask him if they carry the high chill peaches that you would be growing up in mason but um that's going to be a good primer for getting started with peaches uh, plums, plums should do very well for you. I would always have at least two or three trees to get cross pollination. And there are lots of good varieties, Methley, Santa Rosa, Bruce, Green Gage. There, there are a lot of different plums will do well for you. Uh, you'll do very well with pears. Uh, choose the pear varieties that are most blight resistant and you will find that pears are rated according to how resistant they are to bacterial fire blight. And you always want to go with the high numbers. You'll always want to go with the ones that are most uh, fire blight resistant. Apples are going to be a challenge because uh, they are very susceptible to cottony root rot. Uh, if you grow apples, you're probably going to grow uh, the Israeli varieties that were developed in Israel, Einshimmer, Lodi, Gravenstein, some of these, because you actually don't have enough cold to grow the, you know, the kind of orchids they, they grow, I'm mean, sorry, the kind of uh, apples they grow up north. You can't grow wine saps. You can't grow red delicious. Uh, you're just not cold enough, but you'll be able to do very well with Israeli apples. You'll do fine with uh, most of the yellow apples. Uh, Summer Champion is one that's kind of a red and yellow uh, uh, skinned apple. But you're always going to be fighting the potential for cottony root rot. So don't go and plant a whole bunch of apples because they they may be a little more challenging for you. Be careful with figs. You're far enough north that um, you want to stay away from uh, the, all the really big purple figs because those are Louisiana figs and they'll freeze and die on you up there. But some of the ones like uh, the Texas Everbearing and, uh, oh gosh, Celeste and... Uh, some of those would probably do fairly well for you in Mason. Do you think Granny Smith apples would grow in Mason? You're, you're probably cool enough for Granny Smith. That probably okay. is an apple you could grow. If you like the uh, Asian persimmons, the Oriental persimmons, uh, Fuyu, Tamapan, Taninashi, Eureka, Hachia, all of those varieties will do beautifully for you. They're a little slower growing, but if you like uh, persimmons, they're one of the most long-lived, dependable trees you could plant up there. 
Okay, great. And the other question, so there are some trees on the property, not a lot, but they are beautiful and they're older. And there's like a, almost like a black looking oil in the crux of the trees. And when I started to like bang the tree, there were like ant looking bugs in there. So okay. I think these things are killing the trees, but I don't know what they are. And, and I don't what, know how to treat what, them. what kind of trees are these? Um, some of them uh, look like oak trees. I'm learning. I've been listening to you for years, and okay. I'm learning. Now yeah. I have a playground. What? Yeah, that's a great thing. You're probably looking at some different diseases that are basically stress-related. You need to check those trees, be sure the root flare is exposed. Um, you need to, if we go into severe drought, you might even need to think about watering. Is there a home on the property, or is this raw land that you're buying? Not yet. It's, it's raw land. Okay, okay. Uh, the weekender cabin is going to get put up in the spring, so Good. I can spend every weekend up there. Well, plan on some organic fertilizer. Um and, you know, just just good organic conditions. Check and be sure the root flare is exposed. If there's any oak wilt in the area, I think it's very important to start treating them with cornmeal or the corn water tea to be sure that okay. they don't get oak wilt. But uh, it sounds to me what you're looking at could be bacterial wet wood, could be two or three different things. But those are all stress-induced diseases that come from neglect and sometimes from being buried too deeply so just with your good care i think the trees are almost certainly going to overcome those problems but uh uh watch out for oak wilt because there's a lot of it up there okay so the bugs that are coming out of the dead bits of the tree is that's not causing it they're no. just going up there to eat it they're just so going that to get rid of them? if you want to get rid of them a little spinosad soap uh would spinosad take care of it very soap. safely Okay, thank you so much. Well, you got the best Christmas present in the world, Christy. I sure hope you enjoy it. And I'll look forward to talking to you again. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Reese and Andy and Leslie. One open line. Grab it if you'd like. Good morning, Reese. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have two quick questions. The okay. first one is about Meyer lemons. All right. The caller on your show was saying that he has so much abundance of fruit, he doesn't know what to do. I wish I could talk to him <laughs> about what he's doing right that I'm not. <laughs> well, have you had good crops of lemons in the past? No, not really. Okay. Because I, I, and then they all dropped off. Okay. Well, one thing I think, uh, and, you know, he said it had a good crop two years before. I find this to be the case sometimes that when you have a really good crop one year, the next year your tree kind of rests a bit, and then the following year it goes back to having lots and lots of fruit. Generally speaking, if a if a lemon tree sets fruit but then drops it, it can be because we've had a freeze that actually was cold enough, even though it didn't harm the tree, it it actually harms a little developing embryo inside of the fruit. At a certain point, the fruit chemically detects that there's no developing seed in there, and so it just drops it off. It it in its own, you know, in its own way, it says, "I'm not going to grow a fruit with no seed because my purpose in making fruit is to make seed to make more trees." So many times, if the tree if the lemons form and then fall off, it's because we got a, a little bit of late cold that was too much for them occasionally it can be from not enough sun occasionally it can be from not enough nutrition so 
If you're feeding regularly, feeding maybe monthly with something like has to grow, the nutrition should be taken care of. Uh, there's no such thing as too much sun for a lemon tree. The more sun, the better. The more sun they get, the more fruit they will set. Mm-hmm. So if you've got those things covered, I know the past couple of years, we have had um, later than normal freezes after the time the trees normally set their fruit. And people that had trees in protected areas, and if I recall, he was in an area a little further south that didn't get as cold. Um, those people will have lots of fruit. Those trees, uh, people whose trees were out where they got a little bit more cold, you know, may not have as much fruit. But if all other things are equally are equal, then usually if they're a little bit light on fruit one year, then you'll probably have more fruit the following year. Hopefully this year I'll get some. I will count on that for you. They need, Bob. I'm sorry? How much water do they need? They want to be watered very, very thoroughly. There's no such thing as too much water, but you can do it too often. So when you water them, flood them. When that soil is dry about a knuckle deep, it's time to water them thoroughly again. How, because we had a very dry summer, you know. Oh, we've had a dry fall. We've so far we've had all these little drizzly rains that, you know, not enough I, to soak the ground. Right. It just mm-hmm. the the moisture barely got half an inch into the ground. So we we've not had a decent rain in at least a couple of months now. So regardless of all these rainy misty days, you need to be you need to be soaking those trees pretty thoroughly whenever that soil's good and dry on the surface. Right. And also, the previous caller was talking about tomatoes. Yes, he says his his tree is still producing the fruit. Right. What kind of what variety was there? I think that was probably Sun Gold. He said mm. it was a small, uh, very you know intense yellow colored fruit, and that sounds like Sun Gold. Sun Gold is the heaviest producing tomato I've ever had. It's a cherry tomato. It's a very sweet tomato. Uh, first thing I typically do in the garden in warm weather is walk in and eat about 20 sun gold tomatoes and then go on with my work. So I'll have to say that it is close to my favorite. It's certainly my favorite of the cherry tomatoes, and uh, it's probably the tomato I eat most of. So I think it's awful. I don't think you'll find them this late, but it would certainly be it's a great tomato for spring, great tomato for summer, great tomato for fall, because being a cherry tomato, it doesn't pay any attention to nighttime temperatures, so it pretty much just produces constantly. So that's what I'm going to grow next year. <laughs> I I promise you, uh, the first uh, six uh, sun gold tomatoes that come in our nursery are going to go into my garden. But after that, you come get what you need. <laughs> yes, I love your nursery. Yes, well, and we appreciate it. But no, sun gold is uh, is an excellent tomato, and as long as you keep it from freezing, that thing can produce twelve months out of the year. Wow, that's music to my ears, <laughs> <laughs> and good taste to your palate. Right. And thank you, Bob, for all the information, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and your family, Reese. So good to talk to you always. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Next up is Andy. Good morning, Andy. Good morning. Good morning. I have about 10 Carolina Reaper chilies. Okay. And I was wondering if I could grow them from seed. You can. You can. Um, uh, Most peppers... 
uh, are actually come fairly true from seed because they're wind pollinated. It's not like they're bees coming in and carrying their pollen all over the garden. And Carolina Reaper, you will get some variation uh, in that, you know, if you plant 100 seeds, you know, probably 90 of them are going to look just like the plant they came from. And you may get a few little oddball ones. Probably every single one of them are going to be very very hot shall we say but uh yeah save uh save oh, the they're seed. Horrid. They're, they're... <laughs> you know there are some peppers that are so hot they're actually like, looking they're like for enemies <laughs> yeah yeah there there's some peppers there they're looking for military uses for these things and i can believe that because they'll burn your skin they'll burn your eyes and it takes a pretty cast iron stomach to tolerate them, but in in moderation, uh, they're also very flavorful. So, let your peppers turn color. Let them become, you know, fully red. That will mean that the seed is ripe. Uh, take a okay. uh, slice of pepper open. Take a spoon or you know, dull knife or something or other, and scrape the seeds out onto. I use a piece of parchment because it doesn't stick to it the way it would to a paper towel and. You know, one roll of parchment is probably going to last a lifetime for most of us. But scrape your seeds out on parchment. Let them dry for two or three days. Put them in an envelope. Put that envelope in a jar that you can seal up and stick in your refrigerator until it's time to get your new plant started. Okay. Uh, Do I I stick it in any kind of... um soil medium or when you get ready to start more plants which is probably going to be oh 60 days from now at least um yes then uh in fact why don't you call me then and i'll walk you through the whole process right now i just want you to get good viable seeds and store them properly okay excellent i appreciate it and uh, one thing you can do uh, seems to work with a lot of different very hot peppers. Uh, roast them or smoke them. I'm so grateful to my friend Cappy Lawton for telling me that on the chili pekins and things like that. And Cappy's about as good a chef. He and Bruce Alden are my two favorite chefs in San Antonio. Bruce Bruce has a uh, bega uh downtown and you talk about a wonderful restaurant and cappy of course is a great restaurateur but cappy told me about taking his uh chili pekins uh and roasting them or smoking them and then they become a little less hot and even more flavorful i don't know about the carolina reaper that would be a fun thing to try with that and see if it moderates the heat a little bit while uh, improving the flavor it's uh i i can't say it's the most flavorful thing it's Mm -hmm. just uh, it's <laughs> just hot. It's, like I said, it's just for your enemies. <laughs> well, but you know, it's funny. Um, birds, you you won't do anything about you know keeping birds away because birds don't taste heat. They don't have those sensors in their little mouths. But the oh. one thing you can do for this kind of thing, you can throw those peppers in a blender, uh, blend them up, and spray that out on different things, and the squirrels will not come around. The raccoons will not come around. The possums will not come around. Uh, the deer. Uh, the deer will not eat anything that that is sprayed on, and uh, even your lab, even your Labrador retriever won't eat anything. So it does make a really very good. Uh, repellent as far as keeping mammals away. Like I say, birds don't taste, so you're not going to keep the birds away from things. But if you're having an issue with other things, you'll have to reapply it after a rain or whatever. But, boy, what okay. a great animal repellent it is. Okay, excellent. I appreciate your advice. Always a pleasure, Andy. You enjoy, Thank and you. Uh, don't overdo it on the Carolina <laughs> Reapers. 
<laughs> You'll know it if I do. Uh, thank you. Take care. Okay, bye. All right, back to gardening, and uh, it's going to be Leslie and Mark. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning. How are you this I'm morning? I'm good, thank you. How about you? Doing well, thanks. Good. I have uh, just one question. Um, I have a number of camellias and pots, and um, one I have one big red double one, mm-hmm. and I have a problem with spider mites. Okay. And so um, my question is, do you recommend treating with neem? I mean, it's it's kind of it's cooler than it would have been to treat it in the summer. Sure. You know, there, yeah, neem is effective, but neem has very short shelf life. You almost have to buy a new bottle of neem every time you're going to spray. My choice has gotten to be this uh, material called spinosad soap. I'm finding okay. it very effective against mites, against aphids. It's just mealy bugs. It's gotten to be my go-to insecticide, and it's totally safe. I use it in the vegetable garden. I use it on the flowers. I would recommend that during the growing season that you spray regularly with liquid seaweed because that usually will toughen your plants to where spider mites are not an issue. But uh, uh, the other thing I would do, you say all these camellias are in pots? They're in pots, uh-huh. Okay, yes. ceramic pots, clay pots, what kind of pots? They're in terracotta. Okay. If they were mine, I would turn the pots on their side, and I'd drill an extra drain hole or two in the bottom because okay. woody, woody-rooted woody plants like camellias may get such a, such a thick root system given time that they really start restricting the drainage out of the pot. And that's when you have things like spider mites show up. Spider mites are usually a stress issue. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just the end of the season on plants like tomatoes. But on a perennial plant like a camellia, something is keeping that plant from being at its peak of uh, just of health. And uh, Mm -hmm. increasing the drainage out of the pots is one of the easiest and best things you can do. Put a masonry bit on your drill. You'll drill those pots. You, You know, I've drilled probably... 10,000 pots. I think I've broken one pot out of 10,000, which isn't too bad. Okay. All righty, and that's all I had. I appreciate your help. And you enjoy your camellias. Uh, this uh, particular plant's not getting more sun than the others or anything, is it? No, uh, and and this I inherited this particular one, but I did have um, others, and the buds haven't cracked on it yet, so I kind of wanted to get after it. Um, I well, think this one blooms around... Um, Mid-January time. Yeah, there are japonicas that are spring-blooming, and then the sasanquas. I'm sorry, japonicas are fall-blooming, sasanquas spring-blooming, and lots in between. But uh, you improve that drainage, and I'll bet your problems will go away for you. Okay. All right. Thanks again. You're welcome, and thank you, and Merry Christmas. Bye. And to you as well. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I get right back to the phone lines and say good morning to Mark. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm very well, sir. How about yourself? Fine, thank you very much. It's going to be a beautiful winter day in San Antonio. Well, I thought I was I was outside the other day thinking about what you said a couple of weeks ago. How there are more berries on the cedar trees, yes, but sir. I'm doing my part to eradicate those <laughs> devils. So. You know, I actually will go through this time of year on my ranch. And I'll take a little piece of uh, surveyor flagging, which you can get at any good hardware store, and I go through and I tag the female trees so that when I get time to go through and start removing trees, the female trees go first. And uh, I think it's a great plan, but, man, there are a lot of berries out there. There are. This this is related. Well, it's a, it's a two-part question. Last, <clears throat> last week when I heard you and Howard discussing 
the material that you put at the drip line to bring trees back and you mm-hmm. said you even had a tree on a, a ranch that you know of where the person had like a 300 year old tree and was suffering from oak wilt and right. came back mm-hmm. and i didn't have i was not in a position to write but now i am in a position to write so okay. i would like to get <clears throat> well listen listen for a minute first to the science behind it at the time okay. that i you know that i first was working with this uh and it happened to be the guy I buy hay from up in Sisterdale. But I had mm-hmm. seen numerous occasions where using cornmeal uh, around the tree helps. And in many cases, I mean, it would stop oak wilt. It would reverse it in a lot of cases. Uh, Larry's a pig farmer, so I got him to, I probably got him 200 pounds of cornmeal. And he spread around the root zone of this uh, of these two trees, actually on the edge of a pond on his property up there. And he's a pig farmer, so I told him to go scoop all the pig poop he can out of your barns and put around the trees as well. I was buying hay from him last week, and I tell you, you could hardly tell those trees had ever had oak wilt. And funny thing is, had an arborist friend uh, who was kind of washing with interest, and he told me at one point, he said, uh, you would not believe how many arborists out there are praying, please don't let it be the pig poop, please don't let it be the pig poop, because they didn't want to tell people to put that on their trees. But the science is out there now that certain things will induce uh, in effect, a resistance to diseases such as oak wilt, and in many cases will actually cure those diseases. And uh, I talked to uh, talked to David uh, this past week, and he's agreed to come to a seminar uh, this spring for us at Shades of Green. So if you're in town, you might very much enjoy it. But at this point, it goes by several names. Uh, some people call it uh, induced resistance or systemic re- induced resistance or systemic acquired resistance. And basically, it is demonstrating that you can stimulate plants to, in effect, become immune. It sort of shows that plants have an immune system. It's very different than what you would find in man or in higher mammals, where our bodies build a defense to one insult at a time. They fight off one disease at a time. That's what vaccines are all about. You get an infection, they fight off one infection at a time. With what we're learning about systemic acquired resistance is that when you stimulate these plants, and it's not just trees, but when you stimulate these plants to become resistant to things, they pretty much become resistant to a wide range of things, including virtually every fungus disease out there. Now, three of the things, and David's also going to share some of his slides with me, because as I went when I went to a lecture he was giving, I told him I just couldn't write fast enough. But um, cornmeal is certainly one, and the way it works is through the trichoderma fungus that it grows. And it can be any kind of cornmeal, just not the so-called enriched stuff from the grocery store. That stuff's worthless. But uh, just the cheapest deer corn, cornmeal, corn chops, whatever, uh, the, the trichoderma fungus that grows on that will induce the trees to begin becoming resistant. Uh, something called salicylic acid uh, in Europe they're doing this by using fresh mulch from willow trees that are very high in salicylic acid. Biochar, which is being studied more and more, and it's different from just activated charcoal, but biochar is good at inducing 
uh, this resistance to the trees, the other or to the diseases. The other thing that we have learned is that you don't need to go buy a huge amount of cornmeal and spread it out over the drip line and bring in every wild hog and everything else in the world. It seems to be just as effective if we make what uh, I call corn water tea. You'll take a five gallon bucket, fill it with water. Put maybe a cup of cornmeal in there and let it stand overnight. Uh, I'm told that two hours is the minimum time, but let it stand for, you know, as, however long you want, up to maybe 24 hours. And then simply pour this liquid, not around the drip line, but fairly close to the trunk of the tree, within 10 feet or so of the trunk of the tree. And it seems to do exactly the same thing with a lot less cornmeal. You don't have to add pig poop either, but uh small tree, probably one five gallon buckets enough. I'll do it like every six months, bigger tree, maybe two buckets, a monster tree, three or four buckets. And uh, what you're doing is, is inducing a resistance in the trees to hypoxylin canker, to oak wilt, uh, to a number of different things that trees could get. So, in a nutshell, that's what we were talking about, and uh, that's about as succinctly as I can put it, given, you know, two, three minutes to do it. Does that make sense? Uh, no, that, that's excellent, because uh, the, the, there are two post oaks I'm working on that were surrounded by uh, cedars who have uh-huh. now been uprooted, and one of those was a female, and um, I thought to bring them back, to, you know, give them some mm-hmm. rejuvenation. Although they seem, the cedar oaks seem to come, uh, the cedar elms, excuse me, seem to come back on their own. Yeah. Uh, they, they look great. I mean, the leaves are waxy and they're bright green. I mean, they look terrific. Right. But uh, the oak tree, the post oak seem just a little on the slow side. So I well, post oaks, post oaks are wimps. Um, <laughs> they're quick to grow and quick to die. They do not get oak wilt, so that's not an issue here. But uh, they don't like it too wet. They don't like it too dry. Like They're just wimps. And uh, the cornmeal, the corn water tea will very definitely help them. But uh, post oaks in general are unhappy because we had a pretty severe drought followed by a surplus of rain followed by another droughty period, and uh, they they like it right down the middle. They like the Goldilocks effect. They don't like getting too dry, and they don't like staying too wet. So I can't think of anything that will give you a better chance to bring them back, but I would never plant a post oak. Uh, they just are susceptible to too many vagaries of weather and climate that we have no control over. Well, well, they're already here, and they've got a yeah. girth of about like a two-foot diameter. Absolutely. We're, do everything you can to save them. Yeah. Keep them, yeah, exactly. The second question I have um, is more of a uh, need to have this item to block out the uh, propane tank. Uh, there was a cedar tree there, and that's a, a sense of a bit of dust. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's a hole there, and I want to just cover that just for the aesthetics of it. And the request I got from the party of the second part was, um, I would like to have a hollyhock. Now, before you say they're not native to Texas, I know that. But in Fred, at the post office across the street, there's a hotel. Mm-hmm. And in that hotel parking lot, growing there bigger than Dallas, is a hollyhock uh, bush. Okay. Um, <laughs> I love the party, the second part. Hollyhocks yeah. are biennials. Uh, they are not permanent plants. They grow for about two years, and they die, and then they start over from seed. The first year they grow, the second year they bloom. I love hollyhocks. I think they are great, great plants, but it's not like a shrub that you plant once, and they are there forever. If this one is indeed a hollyhock, and if it is coming back year after year, it is reseeding. 
I would examine it very carefully because if it appears to be more of a woody shrub, it is more likely uh, a plant that is called althea. Hibiscus syriacus is its, is its botanical name, uh, and altheas are extremely hardy. My mom had them in her uh, yard in East Tennessee where they went below zero with some regularity, bloom beautifully, grow reliably. So my suspicion is that you might be looking at an althea rather than a hollyhock. Is, is the bloom consistent with that of a hollyhock? Does it look Al- like a, Almost identical. A- Okay, I, that that must be what it is, and because this one has been there, I mean, it's Fredericksburg. I mean, yeah, it's been yeah. there since you know probably the Germans moved in. It's an althea. So. It's an althea, and altheas are great shrubs. Uh, they do lose their leaves in the winter. They are susceptible, unfortunately, to cottony root rot, which your cornmeal will help with. But uh, I think altheas are one of the most underused plants out there because most varieties will grow from four to eight feet tall, very reliable summertime bloomers, absolutely beautiful. I happen to like the single-flowered types, but uh, there's some beautiful double uh, altheas out there as well. So uh, if that's what... (laughs) <laughs> that's what the party of the second part desires, and you wish to keep that person happy. I see nothing wrong with the planting in Althea there. Now, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid, Bob. <laughs> I'm, 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 glad to, I know, I'm glad to know that the uh, the pig excrement is not an extra yeah. attraction to the cornmeal, because I'm looking out my window now at my west field, and it looks like someone has run a bulldozer through it. Yeah. Well, I, I will I will quote a friend that I see in Bernie with some regularity at Starbucks up there, and he says, when you look at my forehead, it says ugly. It doesn't say stupid. <laughs> I know that feeling. Well, listen, the one other thing I would tell you is in your cedar clearing, on any tree, be careful about just removing all the dense cedar around it, especially on the west side of the tree, because trees can actually get sunburned. And if you have a post oak or a cedar elm or anything else, it has been protected for years from that blazing western sun, and you suddenly take all the cedar away, you can actually burn the side of the tree. So I would begin by thinning the cedar. I would remove all the cedar on the other three sides of the tree. But sometimes it's not a great idea to simply take every cedar out around. And I do recommend cutting off at ground level because that will kill them as opposed to bulldozing or ripping them out with, uh, you know, whatever equipment you have because you just screw up the roots of too many other plants around when you do that. So is clear clear cedar you know wisely and uh start as you're doing with all those female plants um but uh don't don't just necessarily try to eradicate it completely or you may create some problems you didn't anticipate well i've, I've left the ones that and i have not seen this yet and i had a lady up from parks and wildlife uh go over the property before very we good started working on it very good and I, I i left the ones where they said you know this is the home of the golden cheek warbler absolutely the, the larger older stuff yeah no bird nests i've ever found are in those little i don't know what you call them they're, they're kind of like stingers that, that go on the the uh, live oak tree that mm-hmm. grow up around the tree right and i've seen them in short like three four foot high little uh i call them suckers i don't know what the real name is of them but i've seen nests in those trees never in any of those old um you know, those old cedar trees. Well, the the uh, your golden cheek warbler 
does not necessarily nest in those old cedars, but they use the bark from those cedars to build their nests. So I'm not surprised. Set up enough bark from these cedars that there must be enough bark here that you could build an igloo. Well, uh, the golden cheeks, I mean, I think they're a good thing to have on your property because you'll never be able to develop it or put a highway through it as long as you have that. But uh, they, you know, they're, they're an interesting bird. I'll just put it that way. And I'll, I'll leave Parks of Wildlife to uh, totally explain their biology to you. But anyway, good luck with it, Mark. Great question. And I really appreciate the call. Uh, thank you for the info, Bob. As always, great job and have a great and merry Christmas. You do the same, sir. Thank you so much. You. <laughs> Bye. Good morning, David. Hi, David. Uh, David doesn't seem to be there. Let's put David back on hold, bring him back up again. Good morning, David. Hello. Good morning, sir. Yeah. So um, I've got a, just a quick question about the fig tree. Okay. Um, I noticed just, just yesterday that it's starting to bud. But my real question is, when is the best time to uh, to prune it? Well, it's not now. And the reason that you don't want to prune now is because if we have a warm spell, then sometimes it tries to come out and freeze back. Now, we're supposed to get pretty chilly next week. I don't think those buds will get very far advanced, so I doubt the cold weather will hurt them. But if you prune now, you could simulate some growth that would be hurt by the cold. The best time to prune them is early spring, probably late February to March. The problem is every time you prune, you're going to reduce your fruit production. So uh, my pruning on figs tends to be cut out some of the higher limbs because the birds always get all that fruit anyway. And uh, I don't prune too heavily down below. But fig trees get big and, uh, um, you know, it's... They they just they want to grow you know ten twelve feet tall and fifteen feet wide and you just pretty much trim them when you need to just to keep them in you know within the size that you have for them uh, but the best time to prune pretty much throughout this area is going to be late February early March. Okay, great, thank you very much. And just remember, we're in a pretty dry period right now. Fig trees have a very shallow root system and they really like moisture. So uh, I would certainly be uh, keeping some mulch over those root zones. If we don't get water at least once a month or so, I'd be giving that tree a good thorough watering. And uh, you have a good holiday season. I appreciate the call. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right. uh, That makes Barbara next. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Uh, So glad to hear you. Um, I have a couple of of, uh, problems here. I promised a friend an amaryllis bulb, and my amaryllis has just absolutely, you know, they they've multiplied sure. and i was wondering um if i dig down too deep will i be damaging the bulbs if i try to separate one out well the better time to do it would have been a month or six weeks ago i suspect your amaryllis is coming up ready to bloom right now no 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 it's not in fact um i have cut all of the the limbs back oh okay Uh, then this would be a fine time to divide it you are definitely going to leave a wound on the bulbs when you go through and separate them like this i would leave them to dry for a day or two uh some people would actually dust a little sulfur on that wound to cauterize it but you don't want to immediately put wet soil around it or you could potentially get some sort of rot started but i would leave it to dry to callus for three or four days and then 
either pot it up and give to your friend or give him or her the bulb and let them pot it up and grow it because uh, how big is this bulb, that, the side bulb that you want to take out, how big is it uh, in comparison to the big bulb and actually just uh, how many inches across would you say the bulb is? I would say they're probably three Two and a half, three inches. Oh, well, that's big enough to bloom. Uh, your friends okay. should get bloom, and you should get blooms uh, pretty soon as well. It's about time to start watering them and let them come up and do their uh, yearly blooming. Okay. Uh, I love that amaryllis. They're beautiful. Oh, they're and, incredible. Um, okay. Good deal, because uh, I wasn't too sure. I didn't want to do any damage to them, because they've they've multiplied so much. I think, I don't know how many I have down in the pot. It's a great <laughs> huge pot. Well, and you know, that, to me, the prettiest amaryllis, and I'm thinking of the one that my partner has, uh, spends most of the year on her front porch, it has multiple bulbs, and when it blooms, it comes up with several spikes all at once, and every one of those spikes usually has four big flowers on it, and uh, uh-huh. it's just it's a real showstopper. And so I don't encourage people to divide them often, but they can get crowded to the point where I think they they do a little better if you do thin them out a little bit. But uh, you know they always have that dormant period between the time you're letting the foliage build the bulbs, uh, then they in nature they die back due to drought. But you can uh, induce that just by discontinuing watering. And we let them set that way for six or eight weeks and then start watering. They come up and bloom. And any time during that drying out period, it's going to be a very okay time to divide those bulbs. Okay, thank you. And uh, I have a poinsettia uh, I had talked about some time ago that I grew from last Christmas. Mm-hmm. Someone had given me a poinsettia, and I have grown it. It's, it's uh, probably about four feet tall now. <laughs> and. And, and I'm so proud of it that I was able to do that. But uh, I think that the frost may have nipped the leaves at the top that are mm-hmm. starting to turn red. Right. So they've kind of curled up. Should I pinch those off? No, just leave them. It's impossible to tell how much damage has been done. We have had frost. I, I know two or three locations in San Antonio where they're great big ones when i'm over near dr kirby's clinic that i visit fairly often but i just haven't been by there to see how badly hurt they were by the early frost but you're not gonna help them now once they start hopefully there are enough bracts remaining that can color up real nicely once those are really starting to color well you make them a little may make them a little more attractive but i'd wait until you can be sure which and and the bract of course is a colorful part it's just a modified leaf but be sure you can tell which ones are really damaged before you go in and start clipping them off or you may be clipping off something that would be, turn very beautiful later all right, then I won't touch it. Um, and also, I just wanted to report on my fig tree that okay. I have been so so upset about for for three years. Uh-huh. This is this is the fifth year, and uh, actually, it was it was it's growing and it's actually beautiful. I think I'm going to be successful with my fig tree, and I just wanted to report. That. <laughs> well, see, patience is a virtue worth cultivating, along with fig trees. Obviously, so. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Barbara. Thank you. All right, uh, 1035, let's get back to gardening here. It's going to be Robert and then Linda and Mike. And I have one more caller coming in right now. Dr. Kirby's in the building. Uh, It'll be time for the pet show very shortly, but still have time to talk a bit of gardening. Good morning, Robert. Uh, Yes, I was calling about a water pressure pump and tank uh, that serves a house or a building out in the country. Okay. And the, the main point is 
we've had one forever, of course, because we've had a windmill and then the water gets to the house and right. the pressure pump and the little tank provides the pressure for the house. And what I'm wondering about is whether there are new tanks made that do not have any toxic material sprayed on the inside or plastic or anything else like that, because we're going to have to replace our little tank that goes along with the pressure pump sure. because the valve sure. doesn't hold anymore. And I've seen some advertisements that talk about antibacterial or antimicrobial no, coating. No. Yep. And I would prefer to just have a plain <laughs> stainless steel or something pressure then And that was what I was just about to say. You may have to look around a bit, but I suspect there are stainless steel tanks out there. Uh, they will command a little bit higher price, but they would certainly be my choice, and I think they would certainly be lifetime quality. Um, in this case, I would talk with a good well company. Um, where, where are you located, Robert? Uh, this place is, this farm is down on the coast. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, or, or, well, I tell you, the guy that I would call, or the company that I would call, is Schwope, S-C-H-W-O-P-E, Schwope Drilling. They are up in the Bernie area, and they helped a friend of mine in Wyoming with the problem, so I'm sure they would be happy to help you. I would talk uh, probably to either Larry or John. Um, they're two of the smartest people I have ever known. John is just an encyclopedia on information about water and all. And, um, but, uh, call up there, tell them I told you to call. And if something like that is available, they will certainly know about it. I doubt that they would go all the way to the coast to install it, but they could, uh, probably provide you with a tank and you could find an installer down there. I mean, Pressure tanks are, uh, you got to know what you're doing with them, but uh, uh, it's not rocket science to install one and evacuate the air from it. It basically takes a wrench and a compressor and the sort of appropriate fittings. But um, uh, they, they may, and I don't know if they're doing them for homes now. I know they're doing them for gardens and things. There are also what they call on-demand pumps out there that don't maintain constant pressure, but when you turn on a hydrant, uh, the pump senses the drop in water pressure and kicks in, and uh, you might ask them about an on-demand pump, and if, you're, if your system is appropriate, it might enable you to bypass a pressure tank altogether, but that would depend on your plumbing, on your well, whether... Um, you know, there are a lot of different things, but I, I would start, I would ask about a stainless steel tank, but I would ask about what is called an on-demand pump. And if that's what is, uh, or if that is, uh, uh, usable in your situation, you may be able to totally bypass the need for any pressure tank. Great. Well, thank you very much. That helps a lot. And you tell Larry or John or whoever you talk to up there, I said, hello. I sure will. Thanks, Robert. <laughs> Good luck with it. All right. Uh, let's see. Top of the board now is going to be Linda and Mike and Tony, and it's Linda's turn. Good morning, Linda. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have a silly question. No such thing. <laughs> I feel silly asking it, but um, I need to watch out for my plants. Uh huh. Um, last a couple of weeks ago, when that temperature, we had that temperature drop. Right. I didn't cover my plants because I kept, you know, I kind of keep a 
an eye on my phone to see what the temperatures are going to be doing. <laughs> There's mistake you know, number I, one. <laughs> I, yeah, I well, I keep an eye on that, and then I keep an eye on the phone, and then I double check it with the the news. Sure. You know? And you know, but I was wondering because that last time that we had that little cold front a couple weeks ago, um, I didn't cover them because according to what my phone and the meteorologist were saying you know, it was going to go down to like 34, 37. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after then last week, I talked to my cousin and he lives like maybe four miles from me. And we're in, I'm in the like the middle part of San Antonio. Okay. And uh, he says, yeah, he goes last week when it, when it got cold, he goes, I even had ice on my truck. Sure. Like, wait a minute. I said, I didn't cover my plants. I hope my plants don't die. Well, you oh, can I... look at your plants and see, and, you know, some things like impatience and some begonias are very sensitive. Many other plants aren't. Now, I will tell you, if you have frost on the windshield or something like that, that can occur at 38 or 39 degrees it actually got to 32 degrees on the surface but you can actually have frost form when the temperature the overall ambient temperature wasn't below freezing so uh because he had frost at least now if he had hard ice on there if he had hard ice hard ice on a bucket you know it definitely went to 32 but frost can form i think there are four different kinds of frost and it can form at a higher temperature but look at your plants they'll tell you if they had any damage and um you know if you ever want to make a list of the plants uh, we can run through them real quickly and i'll tell you which ones are you know most susceptible and which ones will be totally hardy but I will also tell you that, and I don't trust a meteorologist, but uh, we could be looking at another pretty cool period midweek this next week. It could easily get down or below freezing in San Antonio. So I would be prepared to cover and ask whoever gives you Christmas presents, tell them you want a good thermometer to put out on your porch because I my phone lies. I mean, I, I'll go out. My phone says, well, my phone said it was 62 degrees this morning. My car, which is fairly accurate, said it was 54. So uh, you need you need a good thermometer. They're not expensive, and that would be a great thing to ask for a stocking stuffer. That sounds good. Well, I guess my question is, like, you know, because I, I look at the phone and, like, let's say it says it's 34 degrees, but then, you know, how it, it also has that other little temperature that says, like, with wind chill or yep. whatever, yep. it feels like 27. Yeah. Your plants so don't... At that point, do I need to be concerned with my, my, my plants when it goes down under that? Well, cold, cold wind can be dehydrating to them, but the actual temperature on the leaf, if they're not wet, is not going to be as low as the wind chill is. Again, if sometime you want to make a list of the plants you have and call me and we'll just run through them one by one. But, uh, for instance, a hibiscus would suffer at 32 degrees. A bougainvillea wouldn't suffer till it got to about 26. Um, you know, a, uh, oh gosh, you know, pick a plant. There are things that will go. Well, um, actually, Bob, I have more like herbs. I have a lemon tree that's got the yellow lemons. I've got some chili beans. Lemon will go down to about 26 without damage. Okay, I got lemongrass, I got oregano. Yeah, oregano will go to 15 degrees. Lemongrass will freeze at 30 degrees. So I, I really can't okay. take the time to go through all of them right well, now. Well, I cover the ones that I have right now. Yeah, <laughs> but but you don't have to worry about covering your oregano ever. You don't have to worry about covering rosemary. You don't have to worry about covering thyme or parsley or sage. Many of those things are totally cold-hardy. Whereas, what about rue? 
Uh, Rue should be cold hardy down in the middle 20s. Okay, well then I'm good to go. Right. Uh, you're good to go unless it gets... <laughs> <laughs> well, you get out and have a good day, Linda. We'll talk again. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be Mike and then Tony. Then we'll see if we have more time than that. Good morning, Mike. Good, beautiful morning to you, Bob. And the same to you, sir. It certainly is a pretty day out there. Can't wait to get back out into it. I know it. Uh, you told a man a little earlier about cornmeal, uh, I think a cup of cornmeal to a five-gallon bucket of water to put right. around the base of a tree. Right. Well, I'll give you a call and straighten me out on uh, uh, St. Augustine. Okay. I've got a couple of bare spots that uh, could be chinch bug, could be a take-all patch, I'm not sure. Could be just where. <laughs> All of those are possibilities. But uh, what uh, the cornmeal, uh, you also said something about just deer corn soaked in a bucket overnight. Yeah, and and if your problem is a fungus disease, brown patch or take-all patch, uh, the cornmeal, well, the trichoderma that grows on the cornmeal will cure that. Now, in this case, I would uh, either pour, if it's a small area, you could soak your cornmeal in water and simply pour it on with a watering can. If it's a big area, uh, you could do it and then put the concentrated uh, corn corn water tea in your sprayer and spray over the area. But brown patch and take-all patch are two of the problems that would be controlled and or prevented by using uh, the cornmeal, allowing it to, well, I guess ferment would might be a word you would use, but to activate the trichoderma fungus, and that would certainly control the problem if it were either of those fungus diseases. Now, of course, I believe this time of year very much in putting out some compost, putting out some good fertilizer. That will help if you've had chinch bug damage, which is not real common here. We see more from grub worms. Uh, that will certainly help if your grass has simply gotten worn down. But that's, those are things that I just recommend in an overall maintenance program. But if your problem has been disease, then the cornmeal would definitely go a long way toward controlling the disease issue for you. Okay, well, these uh, couple of areas <clears throat> have been this way for a while, mm-hmm. and they don't seem to be spreading, Okay, staying in that one spot. And would uh, cornmeal be better than, say, uh, soaking deer corn in a bucket? It's just, uh, you know, ground more finely so you have more surface area. No, it would not necessarily be better. You might get a little bit more fungus a little bit more quickly. But if deer corn is what you have, deer corn will work just fine. Like I say, it's not the cornmeal that's the magic. It is the trichoderma fungus, which grows on the corn. Now, anytime it's chopped up, if you're going to the feed store and they didn't have uh, cornmeal, my second choice would be corn chops, which are at least chopped up a little bit, which increases the surface area. And if they didn't have cornmeal or corn chops, then deer corn would be just fine. But you know, it's kind of like, do you want uh, ground meat, do you want a sirloin, or do you want prime rib? I would say the cornmeal is the best, but a uh, good old hamburger will go a long way toward satisfying you. Okay, well, uh, on these areas, could I just drench them or just spray it on? Either way, whatever's convenient for you. If they're small areas, I would definitely drench just because you get more on. But if you're talking, you know, thousands of square feet, 
I wouldn't have time to do that, and I doubt if you do either. I think the spray would be certainly more appropriate in that area. And you can still do it the old-fashioned way. You can still put just cornmeal in your fertilizer spreader and go spread it around that way. It's just that it goes further as a corn water tea if you've got a big area to do. And, but, you know, cornmeal's not that expensive. So the, the choice is strictly up to you as to how you get that cornmeal out there so the trichoderma can form so it can do its work on stopping the fungus. Well, okay. I thank you very much, and I'll let the other people come in. And uh, you have a good holiday season, will you? You do the same, Mike. It's just a system of uh, season of peace and joy, and I hope that just prevails uh, locally and throughout the world. <laughs> and we just do our, our little parts to make that happen as best we can. Well, thank you very much, and you take care. Thank you, sir. You do likewise. All right, let's. Uh, we'll probably finish up phone calls today with Tony, but we've got plenty of time to talk. Tony, good morning. Hey, Bob, back back at you. I'm from Marion. Two yes, sir. Quick questions. I'm at the Pearl Market, and is there? Uh, can you use the do-it-yourself soil testing? Does that work? Well, you can do just as well by holding your f- soil up to the telephone, and I'll tell you exactly what a soil test will tell you. Um, <laughs> it, see, it, it, it's a great question, Tony, but the the question is, and what you get from these soil test kits, whether you do it yourself or whether you send it off to A&M, they tell you what is in your soil, and that is worthless, in my opinion. The only thing that matters is what your soil, what the plants can get from your soil. I don't care how much iron is there if it's in a form the plants can't use. I don't care how much calcium is there. I don't care about sulfur. I don't care about phosphorus or potassium. doesn't matter how much is there. It's how much is there in a form that your plants would be able to access. So here is how a plant accesses nutrients. A plant releases carbon dioxide through its roots. Its carbon dioxide reacts with water in the soil to form a very mild acid called carbonic acid. This carbonic acid reacts with the different minerals and things we would call both major micro and macronutrients. Carbonic acid, uh, in effect, activates those to where the plants can absorb them and make use of them. If you want a soil test, there is a a soil testing company down in the Rio Grande Valley called Texas Plant and Soils Labs, and they actually use carbonic acid, and the soil test they give you will tell you what is in the soil that your plants can use. You send it off to A&M or somewhere the Extension Service recommends, they're going to dump a strong acid on it, they're going to dump a strong base on it, and they're going to do you a very good job of telling you what's in your soil but not telling you what your plants can use if you want a soil test that tells you what your plants can use you send it off to texas plant and soils labs and they're no more expensive than any of the other guys probably 25 dollars will get you a real good soil test but unless you have a specific problem or a specific need i'm not sure you know it's it's worth even that expense but yeah if you used a do-it-yourself soil test kit it's going to tell you you're very low in nitrogen moderately high in uh, phosphorus and extremely high in potassium you're very low in organic material you're very low in iron and we could go through the whole thing and i've seen a thousand soil tests and they all said exactly the same thing so anyway i'll get off my soapbox (laughs) and why, why do you why do you feel you need a soil test 
Oh, I, well, I have a hay farm, so I, <clears throat> I do that, you know, every couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for my vegetable garden and orchard, I just thought, well, maybe I should just do it. Well, it, it certainly wouldn't hurt anything. And here's the other mistake that so many soil tests tell you. They tell you to go out and scoop up a little bit of soil off the top of the ground. That's not where the roots are. The roots are several inches down in the soil. So if you were to call Texas Plant and Soils Labs, they would tell you to go out and dig down about six inches. And that's where they want to see your soil sample because that's where the plant's roots are. And they will give you, you know, a good, honest answer as to what is in the soil that your plants can use. I'll tell you, you'll never go wrong with good organic fertilizer. I'll tell you, if you really want to pick up microbial activity, you'll do very well with molasses. If you want to apply something that will help hold nutrients in the soil, zeolite is an inexpensive uh material you can add to the soil that stays there for many years humates dry humates or liquid humates will stay in the soil and help where your plants hold and you know absorb and use nutrients there are lots of things i can tell you that'll help improve your soil but if you would like to have a good analysis uh i think uh what is it uh tpsl.org or dot com uh, you can just Google Texas Plant and Soils Labs. If you talk to him, ask for Noe Garcia. He runs the lab down okay. there, and he does a really good job. Sounds good. And one last question, if we don't run out of time, is uh, I want to put in a, a small pond, uh, maybe 20 foot, 30 foot wide. It's kind of a rain catchment pond, mm-hmm. um, and ma- maybe 60, 70 foot long. You know, I don't know, 10, 12 foot deep. Right. What's close to it is a huge pecan tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, the diameter now, not circumference, but diameter is probably close to 60 foot. So it's huge. Uh-huh. So I don't want to, how far away should I make sure I'm away from that? Maybe well, measuring from crown or, or if trunk. if you're if you're measuring from the trunk, if you're concerned about root damage, you take the diameter of the trunk, divide that by two. Uh, if the diameter of the trunk is say forty inches, then you'd want to stay twenty feet away. If the diameter's thirty inches, you want to stay fifteen feet away. Diameter's fifty inches, you would want to stay twenty-five feet away as far as cutting roots. I would probably go a little bit further than that just because, you know, you don't want to saturated soil could be a problem too. I would talk to right. your your local office of the NRCS, used to be the SCS Soil Conservation Service, now NRCS, and they can tell you your soil type tell you whether you're going to need to seal it with bentonite, give you a lot of help. In fact, Parks and Wildlife can help you with actually knowing how to build that pond. And we'll have to hold it there because I'm out of time. But we will talk again. It's time for the Pet Show. This is KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas.